Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, the co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, this is going to be fun today. Um, I understand that you had the opportunity to go out and spend uh, some time with uh, one of our great podcast hosts, uh, Leslie Ewing of the Shorewords Podcast out in California recently and during that uh, event met an incredible person who was going to be the de- guest on the American Shoreline podcast today. So this is a this is a show that comes out of uh, it sounds like a really great trip Tyler and a, and uh, and and the chance to to really learn some new things that we we can share with our listeners. Uh, tell us about it. Well, you know, the honor of producing all of these great ASPN shows with all of these great ASPN hosts, Peter, is that occasionally I get invited to a really great party. <laughs> and Leslie Ewing is a throws a really great holiday party. She calls it the Scotch Party. Uh, listeners need not think hard about what goes on at this party. There's a whole bunch of scotches and uh, cookies everywhere, ham. It's just a great holiday party up in Berkeley, California. And I was invited this year, and I came up to to help Leslie put the party on and to attend myself. And at this party, I met Mark Miller, our guest today, Peter. Mark is a, a retired NOAA Corps captain, uh, had two commands at NOAA. He's standing up a new company called Greenwater Marine Sciences Offshore Incorporated, which is a really, really cool offshore science and research company. And Peter, I when I heard Mark's story, drinking scotch, drinking wine, uh, I, I said, boy, this would be a great show. And then guess what? I go to Washington, D.C. to attend Helen Broll's retirement, and Mark is there, too. So we, <laughs> we continued on, had another great session. I actually went over to Mark's house, uh, uh, and we hung out in his hot tub, and it was amazing. <laughs> uh, it was a cold winter day, and we had a, a, a kick-ass hot tub session. So... I'm really looking forward, Peter, to uh, continuing this kind of party dialogue now on the show with Mark and learning more about what he's doing. It sounds great. And I, as I learned more about uh, about Mark Miller, uh, Commander Mark Miller retired from, as you said, 20 years of service in NOAA and the NOAA Corps, uh, the uniformed officers at the at, at NOAA. And I think a lot of our listeners know, Tyler, that the uh, that NOAA operates a fleet of research vessels that do incredible work around the world. Uh, as you said, Mark had the uh, privilege of commanding two of those vessels over his career. We're going to learn a lot about that. But uh, And I think it's important to understand uh, where we are in the deployment of scientific research vessels around the world, especially to meet U.S. Uh, research interests and needs. Uh, but uh, uh, Mark is also, which I'm interested, you know, spent some time in the Peace Corps. Uh, in, in the Congo uh, is a great background, uh, a licensed officer, a diver, a really experienced uh, waterman, I think I would say, and uh, and really this new company, uh, the opportunities that it open up, opens up for university researchers and uh, researchers of all types uh, to deploy uh, scientific research programs around the world. Um, I think the work that, that, that Mark's doing now is of great interest to our listeners. So it's going to be really a fun conversation with, uh, with, uh, with Mark. I can't wait to get into it. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, Commander Mark Miller, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. 
Hi, Peter and Tyler. Thank you very much for the invite here. I'm super excited and uh, yeah, I'm tempted to, to sit and do this conversation from the hot tub again, but I'm not. <laughs> well, I think we were talking about your incredible background and, and why you think we think you're really a perfect guest to talk to our audience uh, about the work that you've done. But uh, I will just kick it off and then Tyler, I'd like you to jump into this. But uh, Mark, introduce yourself to our audience and maybe fill in some of the details of of your personal story. Oh, absolutely. So yes, uh, G. Mark Miller, uh, present live in, in the DC area in Arlington. And uh, I uh, retired from NOAA about three, three and a half years ago. Uh, again, where I had uh, command of a number of vessels and did a whole bunch of other cool stuff, shoreside diving and management of, of vessels and, and operations and time Coast Guard headquarters, which I'll get into uh, in a little bit, um, but yeah, here with my my wife Erin and and sixteen year old son, who I'm trying to drag along with me uh, in this uh, this venture <laughs> of life. Well, Mark, let's start at the beginning, if that's all right, because uh, you're you have a a, a life really uh, connected to the ocean, connected to the watery part of the planet. What was your what was the initial draw to the ocean and coast? So. I grew up on a lake in central Virginia and go swimming there all the time. But uh, I spent a lot of my summers down in the Florida Keys at my aunts and with my cousins down there. And they lived on No Name Key, which is was at the time completely off the grid. And uh, and yeah, through high school and, and even some summer uh, from college, uh, I'd spend time down there. And we would, of course, go out on the water, a 17-foot whaler, and go out there on a regular basis. Um, my aunt was a, a school teacher, uh, and so um, we go out there and just learn stuff and go dive in. And this is like, like you know, this is the 80s. So my first scuba diving was with that uh, single tank with the, the little pull valve when you ran out of air on a plastic backpack and one hose that came off of it. <laughs> and so, wow. yeah, as the old old days, and, and I worked at a at a at a scuba repair company down there. But that's where I really fell in love with the ocean because uh, I just go out there all the time. I just hop in the boat and go out and, and get some lobster for dinner or a little spearfishing um, or just exploring. Um, and so that's where I, I really mm-hmm. really grew into it. And that's actually the first. Uh, NOAA job I had was during this time period when I was 16, and it was the Lou Key National Marine Sanctuary before the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary came into existence, and uh, and my job was to to go out with the the law enforcement officers on their big scarabs and go out there real fast, and and uh, we'd arrive at Lou Key, and my job was to hop in the water and check the anchor chains to make sure they weren't rubbing against the coral. Um, and then if I see any divers down there touching the coral or doing anything that they weren't supposed to do, I'd free dive down there and I got pretty good at free diving. So I'd be down at 30 or 40 feet, tap a scuba diver on the shoulder and they turn around and look at me like, what are you doing here? (laughs) And I hold up a little, a little sign that says, please do not touch the coral. (laughs) And so that was my first job with Noah. Wow. And so you're 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 living this kind of keep Florida Keys. I think of Peter. You know, I think of the the American television classic Flipper, which I realized was the '60s. But the way you describe it, it's kind of this old school. You know, it's free out there, man. It just seems like you're just. It's the the freedom as a youngster on the in the in these boats, diving down, having fun, uh, exploring. As you say, I mean, what what was. What was it like? Take us back there to the the wonderment of being in the Keys during that period of time. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was it was existing. So, you know, at the time it didn't seem weird at all. But but you're right, like that freedoms, like me and the, and the buddy across the street who didn't actually swim all that well, ironically, because he was from, lived in the Keys. Um, and we'd go out there and just just take the boat out. And anchor it up someplace and hop in the water and find, uh, you know, find a blue lobster. Or, um, you know, got chased out of the water by a barracuda. You see barracuda all the time. It's just that 
seven footer that came along that one day <laughs> that, that chased, <laughs> chased us out of the water, that included my aunt, which is another story. But um, so it was it was just a beautiful time to develop. And, the, and again, the freedom, you know, back in the old days where you'd ride your bike anywhere you wanted to, you know, did that too. But here was like, you could just take the boat out and wander around and do stuff. Um, yeah, it was it was it was nice. I mean, it, it, it's, it sounds like such an idyllic and, uh, you know, the, the lack of structure, I don't mean reef structure, I mean like social structure, uh, into the curiosity zone of the ocean, I just find to be such a wonderful, uh, entry point. And so you, you get this job at 16, you're, you're educating, you're doing some engagement, some early engagement there on the, on the floor of the reef. And uh, where do you what do you decide to do for education? Do you pursue marine biology? Uh, it would seem reasonable. Where do, what do you do for school, and where do you take it from there? Yeah. So uh, yes, I absolutely. My my goal was to figure out how to stay on the water and on the coast uh, for like life, right? So uh, marine geology uh, was my degree. Long Island University Southampton, which no longer exists. As LIU Southampton is now part of Stony Brook. Um, and that's where I went to school, again, with the goal of marine geology, coastal processes, which which meant beaches. Like, that that was my goal. I want to live on the beach. <laughs> um, and uh, so so did that in school. Um, of course, did a lot of research diving, uh, internship up in Maine at the Darling Marine Center, doing research diving. Um, but my life always kind of kind of pushed towards towards marine biology, like Darling Marine Center was, ended up studying lobster most of the time. Um, uh, later in life, it's just like every every time I tried to study a rock, somebody's fish would get in the way. Uh, and so, um, so I ended up having a nice nice uh, array of, of training throughout the years. Um, yeah, until I joined the Peace Corps. And the, you joined the Peace Corps, which is an interesting, what, what motivated that? Uh, born and bred. So my mother was a Peace Corps volunteer in the mid '60s in Chile, and my dad was Peace Corps staff in DC uh, in the '80s. Uh, so it was never a, a question of, of if I'm going to join the Peace Corps. It was more like, Mark, what do you want to do, and where do you want to go when you join the Peace Corps? Um, so, so uh, yeah. So I ended up going to the uh, Republic of Congo, doing uh, aquaculture again. Back to biology versus geology, um, raising tilapia, uh, yeah, in the jungles of the Congo, um, which is wonderful and great and great experiences and tons of good friends. In fact, I'm going to see one next weekend, uh, a return Peace Corps volunteer that was served with me, uh, who was also evacuated with me because there ended up being a bit of a civil war. Uh, and so fundamentally I, I ended up meeting my wife who was at Peace Corps, uh, headquarters on the Congo country desk, uh, who coordinated our evacuation. So yes, I met my wife when she evacuated me from the Congo. Tremendous <laughs> experience. I, I, I took a shot at the, at the Peace Corps as well. I, an, an amazing program. And Mark, it, it's, I'm sure it's hard to summarize that experience, uh, in the Congo and working on aquaculture, but, uh, aside from the fact that you had to be, uh, evacuated due to sort of some civil unrest, uh, what did you come away uh, from the Congo experience in the Peace Corps with? What what really uh, stuck with you as a result of that experience? That you can make a difference. And sometimes it's small, sometimes it could be big, but you can make a difference. So, you know, my time there got cut short, um, but I was teaching people how to, uh, you know, where to dig a pond, how to dig a pond, uh, how to, to raise the fish, how to sell the fish. Um, and I know that after I left, that there was an increase in production of tilapia in the, in the area, uh, that they were able to, to one, sell and get, get a little bit of money and two, just provide extra protein in the region because they were mostly um, bush meat was what they were eating. Um, but, but, you know, it, 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 you, you, we all could make a difference. Um, and in that case, it was, you know, fairly small level, but, you know, the village level. Um, and so, you know, my whole life, I was just like, all right, I could, I could figure this out and help, help somebody else 
help themselves, basically. Um, yeah, as well as, you know, the wonderful experience of living in a small village without electricity for a year in, in the deepest, darkest parts of Africa. An amazing experience. I want to I want to reel back a little bit back to your days in the Florida Keys. Uh, currently, uh, there's a great deal of concern about the the health of the coral reefs in that part of the United States along the American shoreline. Uh, there's been a tremendous decline, according to a lot of the research recently. When you were growing up and and uh, spending time there, was there an awareness of of the status of uh, the, the Florida Keys, uh, from an environmental standpoint, did it? How did it feel to you? What did you observe? Did you were you were you perceiving and perceptive of the of the declines at that point, or or what? What can you tell us about about the state of affairs back when you were at the Keys and fill us in a little bit? Yeah, well, so um, so I spent you know spent time there again. So this is like the the late eighties, um, early nineties, and then. Uh, so at, the, at that time, no, right? It was it was just what it was, and there was I don't even think there was even real discussion about the decline and and, and you know chloral bleaching and stuff hadn't really been a thing yet, um, and uh, so it was kind of I feel like probably the last bastions of of the old Florida Keys reef system. I got to see it, um, and at least close to its heyday, right? Uh, then I went back, and one of my my first land assignment for NOAA uh, was running the the um, dive program and small boats up out of Southeast Fisheries in Miami. But we spent um, I spent three days a week diving in the Florida Keys, uh, doing mostly uh, reef fish uh, work um, and some coral work, and uh, so I got to dive on all the keys. Uh, and so this was the early two thousands, a decade later. And it's like, huh, you do, you do see a bit of a decline um, at that time. And this was, you know, things were starting to kick up and we we're starting to realize what was, what was happening um, at that time. There go the, the coral reef studies that we were, the, the groups were doing that I was supporting. Um, and then, you know, my last command was the Nancy Foster, uh, NOAA chef Nancy Foster. And so this was, what, four years ago? Uh, and we're out there doing doing coral studies. Um, you know, I wasn't in the water because it's captain of the ship, but uh, but seeing the results, you know, another decade plus later, and uh, and it's like, it, it, yeah, it's depressing, right? <laughs> that was just there a few months ago, um, and to see, you know, Alcorn coral that's not there anymore and and uh and the you know the algae overgrowing everything it, it, yeah it's it's tough right i mean that's it's why i'm doing what i'm doing right now what I, why i've been doing it uh, this whole time is, is is seeing that and not being able to sit around and, and not do anything about it it's an incredible sight to see even even in its degraded I, I, I don't want to over overstate it, but, you know, Peter, we did a show a few years ago now. Uh, I, I want to say it might have been 2020 uh, when I went to the Florida Keys uh, and spent 10 days sailing around on a catamaran <clears throat> and had the opportunity to dive around and see, you know, Mark, probably some of those mooring sites you might have uh, been out inspecting back in the day. Uh, I was out uh, moored up on and what's it's just inc it's an incredible so much of it has been killed um it really is remarkable when you're sailing over just mile after mile after mile and to imagine what it would have been like when all of that was alive i mean that's the thing about to me like looking at coral reefs is kind of like looking into space uh it's like looking into the cosmos it's it, it's it's like statistically certain that there is other life out there somewhere when you're looking out in the cosmos. And when you're looking down into a, a, a reef from a snorkeling position above, it is like you're looking into the universe below you. There's so much life. There's so many intricacies that you can see. It's a whole, I mean, our experts know this better than me, but it is just an incredible, it's an incredible uh, sight to behold, incredibly complex ecosystem, kind of mind-blowing. Uh, Peter, I know you've had experiences like that. Yeah, I loved I loved diving uh, in my younger days. Did get down to the Florida Keys, uh, John Pennekamp State Park, as I believe where we we spent some time. And 
uh, had the privilege of diving in the 70s in the Flower Gardens uh, Coral Reef, which is now the Flower Gardens National Marine Sanctuary. Uh, Mark, I'm curious. Uh, you, so you have this this deep background uh, connection to the water. You spend some time in the Congo. You have this sense of purpose in your life. Uh, go into uh, coastal sciences, get a degree. At what point do you uh, decide to uh, pursue a career uh, in into the NOAA uh, Corps and uh, end up commanding a couple of the great research vessels that NOAA operates? The uh, the Nancy Foster and the Henry Henry Bigelow as well. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your NOAA time. Absolutely. So the <laughs> the getting into NOAA and how I ended up there, as as most of my life is is usually guided by dumb luck. Uh, I got back from from Peace Corps early, right, unexpected. So what am I going to do with my life? Um, little bike messenger time in DC here, and, and while I was figuring things out, and uh, so so I had done. Um, sailing on tall ships. And so I was like, okay, listen, I'll just go back out to sea, you know, save some money working on tall ships. That's not a thing, by the way, tall ship community knows you don't actually make any money doing that. Um, but that was my plan. And I had to add a job lined up on the West Coast to, to go back out to sea and do that. And I was like, or, or I could go back to, because I really want to do science at sea, right? Like, that's what I want to do. So I, I looked at the University of Puerto Rico, and went down there to visit, but, you know, going to grad school. And so doing marine geology field work, like, that's really what I wanted to do. Uh, so I was, I was lining that up. Um, and then I uh, wanted to serve my country. So I was like, hey, how about Coast Guard? Um, I'd love it. I know they had marine environmental science type work that they, they would do. And so talk to them and they're like, listen, you could, you could enlist and then maybe someday go to OCS. And I'm like, I'll give you a call back. Uh, and then um, I had done a lot of, of diving, research diving. And I was just like, hey, how do I get into research diving? So I started calling around, figuring out, and this was, this was like internet was still kind of new at the time. And uh, uh, yeah, I looked at, at professional diving, you go work on the oil rigs or something, but didn't really want to do that want to stay in the science world. So I came across the NOAA Dive Center and uh, I cold call NOAA Dive Center and just again, dumb luck, the director of the dive program answers the phone. He usually didn't, but nobody else was in the office that day. And uh, and so I get to meet Dave Dinsmore on the phone. I'm like, here, here's what I want to do. How do I get this training? Well, he's like, like well, you got to work for NOAA or be a NOAA Corps officer. I'm like a NOAA Kuwait. He's like a NOAA Corps officer. I'm like, okay. He's like, well, you know, all all NOAA Corps officers have a science background or engineering, so that's a, a basic requirement just to to be eligible. Um, and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, it's a uniform service, so it's exact active duty, um, and uh, and you drive, you know, primarily drive the big research vessels or fly the the planes uh, for for ocean or for NOAA science. Uh, and, um, and then you might be able to, you know, you're doing the real actual field science out in the ocean, like digging deep into it. And, uh, and you could be a NOAA diver doing NOAA research. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. So, so I could drive ships, like doing the actual field science that I really want to do, serve my country and be a research diver in addition to all that. He's like, yeah. Like I was all four boxes. I couldn't decide which one I wanted to do. And boom, there it was. All four of them checked. And uh, yeah, so I applied, somehow got in, um, and began a wonderful 20-year career doing lots of cool stuff. And where does that career begin? Uh, when you're when you're launching off uh, as a, a new, you decide you want to be a NOAA Corps officer, what is, what, what, do they send you off to boot camp? Like, like NOAA Corps boot camp? What does that look like? <laughs> yes, BOTSI, basic officer training class. Uh, it's the uh, equivalent of, of OCS, Officer Candidate School, for the other services. And uh, yeah, at the at the time, uh, it was at Kings Point Merchant Marine Academy, and we did our our training there. Um, I actually later in my career was the uh, school chief for for the training of new officers and ran the program. And I actually did the last two. Uh, classes at Kings Point, 
uh, and we shut down the program there. And then uh, I was the first school chief to integrate with Coast Guard. So now uh, is partially integrated with Coast Guard Officer Candidate School at the Coast Guard Academy in New London. Uh, so that's that's where we you, you get your boot camp. Um, right there. And, uh, yeah, the only, only difference, major difference from the Coast Guard is that, uh, every single NOAA Corps officer is going to go to sea, uh, except for the few that go flight. Um, so, you know, and we have so few officers that you gotta, you gotta hit the deck running when you get arrived to your ship. So we focus very heavily on, on the maritime, um, ship navigation and, and whatnot, uh, is the only real difference from, from Coast Guard. OCS. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's the kickoff. You know, uh, it sounds, well, it sounds awesome. Frankly, it sounds very exciting. Uh, I've said it before on this show and I'll say it again. I feel like these Noah Corps captains are like the real life captain Picard, Peter, like the real life Star Trek captain. They go out and get to explore the world and command these incredible ships with incredibly smart and capable people on them just sounds like a, a, a really exciting start to a career it's a great comparison actually yeah good great comparison tyler yeah i i think so I, I mean i think it's the coolest thing in the world but we all know that noah has research vessels peter you mentioned it at the top of the show they have a, a fleet of vessels they have a fleet of aircraft you know noah's a big damn agency they have laboratories all over the country but Mark, how big, I mean, how big is the NOAA Corps? How many vessels are, do we have right now? And, and kind of walk us through the, the, the size and scale of the NOAA Corps and the fleet that it operates. Yeah, so the, the NOAA Corps itself actually just got uh, authorization to grow a little bit. And so the, the numbers, last I heard, somewhere in the 320 officers. Um, and that's it. 320 officers is the entirety of the, of the NOAA Corps, maybe 330 now. And uh, um, and so, you know, the deck officers on the on the ships are NOAA Corps officers um, and then complemented with with civilian merchant mariners uh, for for all the other positions, um, generally speaking. And then the fleet itself uh, last uh, last count, I believe, was 15 uh, one five vessels, uh, and they're building two more right now as we speak. Um, so, you know, soon to be 17, uh, ships that primarily, uh, you know, work the EEZ, uh, but occasionally, you know, do trips around the world and, and overseas. Mark, I was taking a look at that. You, you served as the commanding officer on the Henry B. Bigelow, uh, a $54 million research ship uh, launched in 2005. It's a 210 foot vessel, uh, fairly, uh, capable research vessel. Um, I'd like to, I start looking at, at, at this fleet that the, that the government operates. Are we going to kick the tires on a research vessel? <laughs> I would love to. Like what kind of engine she gets? Let's kick the tires on the Bigelow. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, because it leads actually into the next part of the discussion we want to have. But uh, talk to us about the Bigelow, uh, what its purpose was, and how much does it cost to operate that that ship? Take us inside the boat. Tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. So 209 foot, actually, uh, point something. Uh, and, uh, you know, a, but it's a big, big 209. Some of the other ships, uh, Tiago's class vessels were 225 uh, but this thing, uh, the Bigelow and, and the Oscar Dyson class, there's uh, five of them, um, draw 20 feet, uh, 30 feet with the centerboard down. Um, super capable vessels, super maneuverable, big omnidirectional bow thruster that's super fun to drive on, uh, and and a, 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 a big prop with a huge rudder that can, can almost get you about 90 degrees thrust sideways uh, with the rudder design. Um, but yeah, and so it, it takes about uh, uh, 25 uh, permanent crew members, um, not not including scientists, to, to operate it, um, and and they burn about 2,000 gallons of fuel a day, um, and so you know the, the total cost uh, of the vessels um, 
you know, generally speaking, uh, when they do the calculations, are somewhere between twenty and forty thousand dollars a day, uh, you know, to to operate these boats. Um, again, super capable with a with a big A-frame and a massive winch down down below. They're acoustically quieted because these vessels are primarily for for fisheries surveys. Um, so we did a lot of uh, trawling. So it's basically a heavy trawler. Um, and so I did, did time on, on one on the West Coast where we tow um, the, the Bellum Shimada. We tow large Aleutian wing trawls, uh, midwater trawls. And then the Bigelow, its primary job and what it do, do about half the time um, was the, the, is the bottom trawl survey. So basically, you know, your cod uh, and, and everything else down there uh, twice a year. They did about I think it was 400 stations from from all the way up into Canadian waters, all the way down to, to the mid-Atlantic. Um, and and it was some of the coolest work. Like the, this was like the the culmination of what these vessels were designed for. You'd uh, we'd go over an area with a with a multi-beam, and so real time look at the bottom, and and then we had to to fly the net into, you know, looking for obstructions. So for in areas where there's rocks, especially the Gulf of Maine, right? There's rocks everywhere. Um, and then you, so you try to find yourself a little path uh, along there. And we even go out to the continental shelf break and we have a toe on the continental shelf in the canyons, like on the walls of the canyons. And so you'd, you'd, you'd go run over it, you'd take a look, and then you'd decide to kind of calculate where you're going to fly this net and where you're going to land it. Because you'd, you'd, sometimes you'd be a, a mile out yeah, you turn around, run run out far away, stream your net, and then a mile away from where you want it to land, you start shooting the doors and trying to land this net in a little tiny avenue that you only have about a mile and a quarter, and you need to have a mile on the bottom uh, to collect your data, and then you drive it, and so you'd be you'd be having the net on the bottom, and yet the, the canyon would take a turn, and you're like, okay, I got to turn, but you also got to remember that the net's a quarter mile behind you. <laughs> so how do you navigate this thing? Sounds like fun. Um, oh my god, it was so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the cool stuff, and the importance, right? So the the uh, Bigelow, um, if I if I understood correctly, was about like eighty percent of the data for the for the you know stock assessments uh, came from Bigelow. Uh, and so like the importance of the work that you're doing on the ship is, you know, the livelihoods of, of hundreds of fishermen and their family, uh, families. And, and then of course the, the, the fish themselves and the biodiversity, um, you know, so it, it was, it was pretty motivational, uh, being out there, um, doing that kind of work. One, it was fun. It was cool. Uh, and, uh, and two, the importance was, I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big industry um, with you know, major implications for, uh, uh, you know, again, the fishermen themselves and the, the fish and the ecosystem. I imagine, you know, we've had uh, uh, several scientists who have taken their research out on uh, research vessels offshore, including the Bigelow. And um, there, uh, what, What's it like, you know, as the commanding officer of the vessel? Do you have time to follow along as the science is being done, or are you uh, kind of restricted to the the bridge and the duties of running the vessel? Uh, combination of both, you know. Sometimes you're always busy and, and didn't have time for that, but I, I certainly um, and and I know specifically the the crew of that ship, uh, the crew of all of the Nova ships are actually interested in the science you're doing so they're always busy right the operations and and uh but we would every every trip we would have the, the scientists give a little presentation uh to the crew uh on what we're doing what's that are collecting why we're collecting it you know um to keep everybody interested because you know no uh, government merchant mar mariners um a lot of them could go elsewhere to to get higher paying jobs but that's not why they're there for the most part now they're there because they're doing something good for the world. They're supporting supporting the science. Uh, yeah, the, the mission unites us, um, and so so having that that nexus with the scientists 
uh, knowing what why they're out there and why they're working 12 hour days for a month straight, um, you know, <laughs> is, is is really, really important. You know, it's Noah has tremendous responsibilities, uh, as you say, in fisheries management, but in the uh, management of the EEZ, the exclusive economic zone off of the American shoreline. Uh, it is a data-driven organization, uh, and it is a science-based organization. And the role of these research vessels is absolutely essential to collecting the kind of data, as you say, necessary to regulate and manage uh, the livelihoods of, uh, of people along the American shoreline, not just in the fisheries, but certainly in many, many other activities, economic activities on the American shoreline. I think you mentioned that the cost of the Bigelow is something like thirty to forty thousand dollars a day. So, a ten-day or two-week cruise is a, is is going to cost the government uh, half a million dollars at least. Uh, it's expensive to operate these research vessels. Uh, and I've, I, Mark, you founded you founded Greenwater Marine Sciences Offshore. You're the president and the CEO of this company. And in reviewing uh, the formation of the company and what you're trying to do, I was struck by the statistic that's right at the top of, of your page that, uh, that the federal government demand, the demand for research vessel time is 15 to 20,000 sea days a year is what the research community would like to have. Uh, and yet the capability of our federal fleet, the NOAA fleet, is something like 2,300 uh, C days per year of research time. Uh, we're not getting all the data and the information we need. And that sounds like the fundamental motivating factor for Greenwater Marine Sciences Offshore. Tell us about the company, why you founded it, and what you're going to try to do with this new enterprise. Yeah, you're exactly right. So basically, so so that was NOAA specific, um, average about 17,000 and fulfill somewhere around 2,500 on a good year, 3,000 sea days. But 80% of the science, and this goes across to, to, to universities and, and NGOs, you know, they fulfill 15 to 20% uh, of the proposals they get from scientists. The other 80%, it just doesn't happen. And so, you know, my, my vision is the the, with my experience uh, operating these these ships, um, knowing the the science that that wants to get out there and the science we're doing, is you know the realization that a huge portion of the science could be done with much smaller, more efficient vessels, right? So I would, you know, I, I'm going to give you a couple stories here uh, that that really pushed me in the, in this direction, and the first of which was uh, a on my first ship, the NOAA ship, uh, Gordon Gunter in the, the uh, Gulf of Mexico, and we were doing sperm whale uh, surveys in the Gulf of Mexico. And we'd spend a month out there um, chasing whales around. It was, it was great, it was fun, doing good work. Um, on, on a 225 foot ship with 25 permanent crew members burning a little less than 2,000 gallons a day doing this work. We get back, I at the time lived on a, a 38 foot sailboat uh, and we get back, we always had the after parties on, on my boat, the crew and the scientists would, would get together and tell stories and whatever, have a great time. It was wonderful, uh, you know, getting, getting the crew and the scientists together. Uh, it was one, one big team, happy team. But the, the scientists that got the funding for that project for minerals, minerals management uh, for some reason was not the chief scientist on this cruise. And the chief scientists on the cruise didn't do the actual work that needed to be done to, to justify the, the funding they got. And so, you know, <laughs> we're sitting there and the scientist, you know, starts telling me and, and, and ranting and just like, oh, my God, I can't believe we didn't actually complete what we needed to, to do. Uh, I'm like, man, you know, I've taken this 38 foot sailboat right over those exact waters, like literally right over that area, um, you know, just a few months ago. And, uh, and she's like, right, this is all I need. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, I just need like three scientists. We're going to take some photos, a couple of biopsies, uh, and, and that's it. 
Like, that's all I really need right now. And this boat would be perfect for that. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we took a 225-foot ship with 25 permanent crew members burning 2,000 gallons a day out there. And all you needed was a 38-foot cutter catch. Like, that's it? She's like, yeah. I'm like, well, seed was planted. Well, this is when, uh, to, to cut back to when, Mark, we first met, I nearly spit my 1983 Cabernet out at this moment because uh, the notion is that these research vessels that NOAA is operating are so incredibly, they're, they're like, they're, they're, they're awesome. They're, Mark, if you recall, what I said is it's like what, what, you, what we're providing is like an F-15 fighter jet. And what we need is a Cessna in order to do the vast majority of this stuff. And so it just, it's like, and I would love to ask you, I mean, because it hasn't always been that way. The reason why these big vessels are built this way, I I, I think, is because, you know, the technology in uh, the 80s and 90s was like bigger and heavier. And <clears throat> I guess you probably just needed more space. But could you talk about that? Like how you've seen offshore research change and become more uh, accessible to smaller craft over your career? Yeah, well, I mean, so, you know, right now, every single science organization um, who are building new vessels are, are still right now going bigger, every single one of them. Uh, the, the, the Falcor is being replaced by the Falcor 2, which is like 20% bigger. Um, these new NOAA ships are going to be bigger. Uh, um, the Palmer uh, that does the work down in Antarctica is going to be need to be replaced, and they're designing a significantly larger uh, vessel. Um, and so, so yeah, it's kind of left this gap. I mean, NOAA, when I first joined, had a couple of, of smaller, more efficient vessels, like 170 feet, and and uh, and they decommissioned them and replaced them with significantly larger vessels. Um, you know the. And I never, I don't ever want to to, to poo poo the larger vessels, right? We need them. We need that their capabilities. Um, but it's just so many of the times I'd be out there with this, you know, USS Enterprise type spaceship vessel that's out there, and then a, a, a you know twenty five foot whaler would go by me uh, fishing, and I'd be like, why, why am I, why am I out here with this big ship, and we're putting something like the the size of a, a uh, a desk lamp in the water. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this something's wrong here, um, and and yeah, but but yeah, you know, the scientists usually only get one shot, right? They're like like we're only gonna get funding for one boat, so we gotta have to make this boat be able to do everything. Um, and so they constantly get bigger and bigger and bigger, and now suddenly it's left this massive gap uh, with these smaller, um, more efficient vessels that can that can fill in, you know, the mortar between the big boulders. It, you know, it makes sense, I think, as you're saying. It's, this isn't a criticism of the federal fleet uh, structure or what, what, what we're doing in terms of uh, upgrading uh, the ships and making them larger and more capable. Um, but science is expensive, and, and we need information. Uh, the idea of NOAA working in partnership with the private sector to deliver services uh, more efficiently is not... Is not uh, unique to your idea of green mar green water marine sciences offshore. Uh, Tyler Admiral Tim Galliadet, uh, who was the oceanographer of the Navy and served at NOAA as well, is also a strong proponent of partnerships between NOAA uh, and the private sector to uh, tackle complex scientific problems. Uh, so, Mark, I just I, I'm very interested in, in green water marine sciences offshore. Uh, it's a big step. I assume what you're going to do is provide, uh, I guess, on a contract basis, uh, scientific research services or tell us what the tell us what the product is and how you see it fitting into NOAA's overall mission uh, of science based uh, uh, research. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, one, uh, Tim Gallaudet, I actually got to, to support him when he was the acting NOAA administrator, and he's presently on, on our, our uh, advisory board for GMSO. Um, yes, he is. Love that guy. Um, and, uh, but so, so the idea for GMSO is to have a, a fleet of, of smaller, more efficient uh, 
research vessels to augment the the NOAA and and university and NGO fleets that exist. Um, so you know the the big data point. So that seventeen thousand sea days requested of the NOAA fleet. Um, when I when I ran the NOAA small boat program, we did a study. Uh, and realizing that a lot of this work could be done with smaller vessels, they just didn't really exist in NOAA. So we we pulled uh, pulled all the the scientists that submitted proposals um, for NOAA ship time and said, "Could your work be done on uh, a hundred foot or smaller vessel?" And seven thousand of those days came back saying, "Yeah, absolutely. It's just not an option." Um, so you know, here we are, uh, seven thousand of seventeen thousand voluntarily says, of course, I could do our work on a smaller vessel, just not not the possibility. So the intent is to, to, you know, to flood the market with capable vessels, you know, generally speaking about 60 to, to 110, 115 foot vessels, um, capable, uh, pretty much every vessel that I've even ever considered for this is, is capable of crossing an ocean, certainly going to sea for, for a week or two weeks at a time, uh, goals to, to be up around 10 or 12 scientists. Um, so these aren't, these aren't small little boats, right? These are, these are boats that can, are capable of going out there for seven periods of time, launching, you know, uh, good size, uh, rigid hull inflatable boats for, for dive operations and, and marine mammals, uh, having, uh, oceanographic winches. So you could do your CTDs and, and bongos and any other, other over the side work you need to do. I'm looking at a boat right now uh, in Norway that's got a 2,000 meter ROV uh, on board, um, and uh, like perfect. Oh my God, <laughs> I'm, I'm dreaming of this vessel right now. Hope I can get it. Um, but you know, it it burns 500 gallons a day instead of 2,000. I can still take you know 12, 15 scientists uh, out there. Um, it's just a, just a smaller, more efficient vessel, and I only need five or six uh, crew member to operate it. Um, yeah, so that's the whole goal is to kind of flood the market so we could get, dig into the 80% of the scientists that can't get out there because you know, there's, there's really important work that's not happening for biological diversity collapse or, or ocean acidification that's not being studied right now. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's the idea. Instead of NOAA's two $170 million research vessels that they, they're building right now. I'm like, man, I could build 85 $4 million vessels. And that, that's nothing to sneeze at. <laughs> if we get 85 around the world, we could get, you could get a lot of scientists out there. Again, you still need the big guys to do big, big ship work. But, you know, most of the, most of the science is, is near coastal. Yeah, that's where your reefs are and your, your biodiversity and, and, uh, uh, and where your pollution is and, and, and whatnot. So, yeah, so that's that's the vision. It's just flood the market and get these vessels all over the, the world eventually. Um, and so if any scientist, you know, from the Smithsonian has a project in Panama and then has a project in Norway, we got a boat there. Immediately what came to mind is when I'm in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and I'm looking around at all of these just mega yachts sitting there, not not operating, but I'm sure very expensive to sit there. Um, the, you are not considering, is my understanding, you are not considering like bringing like civilian boats into the service. Be talk a little bit about this because what you need are like, you actually need research vessels. Um, and so what is like, what vessels are you looking at? What, what, if you want to flood the zone, what, what, what would you flood the zone with? What would be the perfect kind of Goldilocks zone research vessel for, for your company? Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, one, as, as we grow here at the beginning, right. So we're, we'll be acquiring vessels and, and converting them um, to that, that step one. And we're looking at kind of like expeditionary yachts again, in the, you know, somewhere in the 70 to 90 foot range for the most part as, as vessels we're looking at because they're, they're, they're yachts, but they're work boats and they can go out and do work and they have, they have power, uh, that, you know, the, the power requirements you need to, to run all your, your science equipment and the hydraulics and everything you need for, for over the side operations. Um, that's step one, but we have already started design process, um, 
for for building that that vision, right? You can't have only one boat because one boat wouldn't be perfect for the middle of the Pacific uh, island somewhere, and and you'll need a different hull design for the Arctic. Uh, and we want to hit both of those places, but um, yeah, you know, you're super efficient. You know, I'm looking at something like a, a 80 foot catamaran that could carry two Navy seven meter ribs, have oceanographic winches and A-frames, a uh, huge area for um, for aerial drones, uh, capabilities for, for autonomous, both underwater and uh, surface uh, vehicles. Um, and space for scientists and, you know, a little, little wet, wet lab space and some dry lab space um, and super efficient. Uh, you know, uh, some, you know, as the new technologies come along, a diesel electric hybrid type scenario where instead of, you know, big research vessels burning 2000 gallons a day, I'm looking at boats that are, are 300 or, or less gallons a day. Um, and, you know, a, per, a properly designed vessel that can literally, again, cross an ocean if, if you wanted to, that can burn, I don't know, 50 or 100 gallons a day and still do these kind of operations because that fuel cost is, is a major part of it. Um, and if you could reduce that fuel cost, then all that, that money goes back into the, to the science and, and lowering the cost for the vessel operations. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the... The goal, you know, again, yeah, I'm not going to be doing manned submersibles or huge ROVs um, and and any major, you know, deep sea coring or anything like that. You got to have the big ships to do that kind of work. Um, but, you know, you can do mud grabs and CTDs and plankton toes uh, and study your 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 ocean plastics and, and chase marine mammals and dive operations for for reef studies uh, like all, all these kind of basic operations, um, that you got, you got to know what you're doing. Uh, you got to have some basic requirements of it, but, uh, but most of the time, a lot of the time you don't need that big 200 foot ship. So that's, that's it. Just if making everything super efficient. So you, again, you could get more scientists out there to study what they need to study that helps the oceans and, you know, humanity in general. Well, the need is clear, uh, Mark. Uh, you know, you've done the done the groundwork to identify the necessity of having more efficient, uh, less expensive access to research vessels. Uh, you know, it's all about opportunity and filling that opportunity effectively. Uh, Twenty years at, as a NOAA Corps officer uh, couldn't be anybody better to put together a program to provide alternative, less expensive access to these research needs. It's got to be pretty exciting. Um, where, where are you in the, in the process of the company? Uh, how's the market responding to your presence? Uh, are you, are you feeling comfortable that you're off to a good start? Tell us about the, where you are in your process of building out Greenwater Marine Sciences offshore. Yeah. So, a, uh, uh, so like I said, I retired about three, I guess, three and a half years ago now. And, and, COVID hit. And as I say, uh, let's say the, I needed the world to stop so I could catch up and it did. Uh, and so, um, we are, have been fundraising and getting organized, uh, and are literally, um, hoping to get our first vessel here in the next month, like right there at the cusp. Um, and, uh, and we're going to, we're going to make that happen right now. Um, but, I already get calls on a regular basis for for work. Um, it's kind of weird. <laughs> like I don't have a fleet of vessels yet, uh, but people are calling me all the time. Mark, do you have a boat yet? I'm like, nope, nope, not yet. Give me give me another give me another month. Um, because there isn't there isn't a a nationwide option. You got your NOAA fleet and a couple other other government vessels. Uh, you got your, your UNALS university fleet and you got the few big NGOs and outside of that, there's a couple, couple of good, good groups that are, that are doing sport and ocean science, mostly in, in hydrographic survey. Um, and they're doing good work, but, but they're one-offs, right? There's one boat here and one boat there. And, and, you know, you, you got a guy, I got a guy that's got a boat, uh, is how scientists usually operate right now. So th there is no other call once you get past that. 
and I've already become that call, um, which is kind of cool. So when you have the market chasing you, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a good thing. Um, but yeah, now right now it's it's been a, a matter of, of fundraising to to get everything kicked off the ground, and and we got enough for our first boat right now, uh, and uh, potential contracts lined up, which is is pretty cool. Um, yeah, so we're we're right there at the cusp. Now, I we have this conversation two months from now. You know, I, I hope to have a completely completely different conversation in the positive. Well, it's it's just such a complex endeavor to put together and position these kinds of assets, as you say. You're really trying to to flood the market and to and to provide a worldwide capability. You know, we're talking about something that's akin to a small navy. <laughs> you know, a nearshore navy. This is a big deal. And, uh, you know, that experience uh, with NOAA as a core officer has got to be uh, incredibly important and helpful to what you're trying to do. Uh, as we get to the end here, Mark, I'd, I'd really like to ask you to reflect a little bit here. Uh, I think we all know on Coastal News Today and listening to Tim Gallaudet's podcast and the, and the network of podcast hosts that are on ASPN, uh, how critical uh, ocean science is now. Uh, the, the world is going undergoing meaningful transformation in climate change that is having significant effect on fisheries and ocean biochemistry, as you say, biodiversity. There's a lot to understand now, and uh, the necessity of this fleet is, uh, is clear. Uh, but as you reflect a little bit on your, on your tenure uh, as a professional and looking ahead, uh, do you feel like you're going to be documenting the new and wonderful discoveries in the ocean or is the work of your crews and your, your vessels as you get this thing up and going, uh, going to be documenting the significant decline of things that we all love? I, I hate to ask it that way, but, um, you know, it's got to be a little discouraging um, when you think about the experience of, of what it was like in the Florida Keys and to see that degradation. I mean, as you get out in the water and you get these scientists uh, in, in more and more uh, out uh, to learn what's going on. Um, tell us what your personal sense is. What do you think is going to happen and how do you feel about it? So, yeah, tough question. Uh, the, you know, I've been with my career at NOAA. Uh, I always had this, this vision that if, if NOAA doesn't get funded to the level of like a, a World War II response, because of, of uh, our, our, our changing climate uh, and everything that goes along with that, then, then, man, we're not in a good place. And so far, NOAA hasn't done that, that, that major bump in funding to really, really attack the uh, ocean sciences and atmospheric sciences that, that needs to be done. So now I get out and I'm like, okay, I am, uh, I, you know, I could be retired and live in Tahiti somewhere and relax and enjoy life. But I can't do that. I have a 16 year old son that, you know, I'm like, sorry, dude, I can't, I can't hand you the world this way without, without trying. Right. Um, and so now here I am starting this company. I'm like, if, if this doesn't happen for me or, or other companies like this, um, then we were really not in a good place because, because we, have to get out there. We know, I mean, where are we at? Our 1.5 degrees Celsius is, 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 you know, recent studies, what, in the last month or two was, was that we're, uh, it's almost a foregone conclusion that we're going to fly by that. We're at, like, what, where are we at? 1.2 now, 1.3. Um, and, and so the, the detrimental effects that, that that's going to happen is, is a near foregone conclusion. Now we're looking at two degrees Celsius, um, you know, what's going to happen there. So the world is changing rapidly. It's almost guaranteed. It is changing rapidly, right? This is no longer a future discussion. Um, so we have to be able to, to study what, what's going on. So we understand it. So then perhaps we could, we could mitigate it, uh, slow it down somehow. And, and, and the, the negative effects, um, you know how, how to how to adapt to it, um, but you gotta you gotta know what you're you're adapting to um, to 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 make that that change that is happening for us to survive as a civilization. 
Um, like we have to be out here studying this stuff uh, or, or we're in a really bad place. And I think, you know, I think the world's starting to spin up a little more and starting to realize that, you know, climate change is less, less of a, a, especially here in the States, you know, less of a, like, oh, it's not actually happening to it's like, oh, I, I guess it kind of is happening. Um, <laughs> you can only ignore it so long. Um, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> humans adapt and have for, for hundreds of thousands of years and, uh, we'll do so, but, but to, to reduce the, the, the pain, um, we gotta be out there studying this stuff so we could, we could figure out how to, how to mitigate it and or adapt to it more quickly. Like that's, that's, that's it. That's the whole story. That's why I'm, yeah. it is. And, you know, Mark, what I what I comes to mind is, uh, the, and and Peter, I think you were you were uh, a mentor in teaching me this uh, kind of lesson. But you know, the bury the bury the head in the sand technique does not yield long term results as far as one's emotional stability goes, because the anxiety of not knowing is actually worse than just the truth of staring the problem dead on. And that's one of the big, I think, anxiety inducers of this era that we have is that, you know, like as human beings, we understand now that we're on this planet all together, but we don't really understand our place in the in the like planetary ecosystem. We don't we don't understand this. This is new to humanity. But one thing's for darn sure, the more we learn about the planet, the more we learn about the ecosystems and you know the various interconnectedness of the planet, the more we will be able to confront what will undoubtedly be some uncomfortable uh, changes in our future. But at least we will have the the power of the knowledge behind us. And so, Mark, it's one of the reasons why I think that your venture uh, with Greenwater is so important. Would you, uh, it, what what can people do to follow along, to uh, support you, support this mission. LinkedIn is by far our easiest and, and uh, see what's happening and going on. So we have we have projects going on, uh, actually a bunch of work going on in Ukraine right now um, and uh, and a few other projects that we've been working on, Florida Keys and, and whatnot, and this even before we have a fleet of boats. Um, and so, yeah, so uh, www.gmsoresearchvessels.com uh, is the website. Um, and then, uh, you know, G, G Mark Miller, uh, at LinkedIn, uh, is an easy one as is, uh, Greenwater, um, research. Uh, and those are the best, best, easiest ways to, to see what, what's going on. Well, Mark, we couldn't be more, uh, privileged to have you on the American Shoreline podcast to introduce our listeners to this capability, which I think uh, for so many of our listeners out there in the research community and universities and around the world, I think the capability that you're developing is really of great interest. So folks out there, if you're interested, reach out to Mark Miller uh, through LinkedIn or uh, uh, Greenwater Marine Sciences Offshore. Uh, we sure appreciate you taking the time to share your story and your initiative with our audience. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is uh, G. Mark Miller. He is the president and the CEO of Greenwater Marine Sciences Offshore Incorporated and uh, one of the leading uh, proponents of the expansion of uh, offshore research opportunities. Uh, so important. Mark, thank you so much for sharing your, your, your story with us on the American Shoreline podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on here. It has been wonderful. And, uh, you know, I listen to you guys and, and stay up to date on, on what's happening in the oceans uh, through you guys. So it's an honor to be here. And uh, and uh, next time you're in D.C., the, uh, the hot tub can, can handle both. <laughs> well, I would love to get out of boat with you someday. Uh, yeah, I keep telling and I have this fantasy of podcasting from a research cruise and, and bringing the, the, the science to the to, to people directly. We'd love to do something like that someday. Man, I hope I can make that happen this summer. That's that's my new goal right now. Getting you guys out there it. to do your podcast off of a mutual goal. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Count us in. Thank you so much, Mark. Appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, guys. Getting my car going too far. Never coming back again. 
Churches they sell to build their hotels. My father's a nine and two.